Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In the program this week, can Swimming New Zealand recover in time for the London Olympics in the wake of a damning review of the state of the sport? We talk to the invisible man of New Zealand cricket, the Black Caps assistant coach Trent Woodhill, and we hear from possibly Super Rugby's oldest debutante. A damning report into the state of high-performance swimming means New Zealand can kiss goodbye to any likelihood of success at the London Olympics, according to leading coach David Wright. The report was commissioned after New Zealand's lack of success at the Delhi Commonwealth Games. It was carried out by Chris Ineson, the former chief executive of the New Zealand Sports Foundation, and found a negative environment with a culture of distrust and a lack of confidence in the leadership. It's critical also of the board, the chief executive Mike Burnett, high-performance manager Jan Cameron. David Wright's been a long-time critic of Cameron and her methods, and says the report is the first step on the sport's road to recovery. Our structure is a very bad one, and the, the reason is quite simply that our structure was very, very socialist, old-fashioned, um, Kremlin-type uh, of organisation where Jan ran everything from the Millennium Institute in, uh, on the North Shore. You see, if you look at where New Zealand's successes in swimming and in track and field athletics have come from in the past, Daniel Loder was from Dunedin, Anna Simsek was from um, Christchurch, Philippa Langrell was from Christchurch, Tony Jeffs was coached by me in Wellington, uh, Paul Kingsman, and um, Paul Kingsman was, was coached up here in Auckland. So we had a very wide geographical spread of, um, of people who were all coached by different coaches. Um, and we lost that. When Jan Cameron took over and demanded that everything be centralised in her hands in Auckland, we lost the ability to find the Anna Simsics and the Daniel Loaders and the Tony Jeffs, whereas the Americans have kept that because uh, Michael Phelps uh, lives and has brought up and is coached in Baltimore. Uh, Rebecca Stoney, the world record holder in breaststroke, she lives and is brought up and is coached in Los Angeles. Um, Ryan Lochte is, uh, came just lived just up the road and was coached by his father just up the road from where from where we lived uh, in Florida. Ree Jeffrey, the girl that I coached, she was also in Florida, but a different club and a different coach. That diversity was and is the American strength. And we moved, when Jan Cameron took over, we moved away from that, and it was inevitably going to fail. It wasn't, uh, you know, I don't think Jan's done a very good job. I don't have a lot of faith in Jan's, Ability, but it wasn't actually her ability that was the problem. It was the structure that was the problem. Do, do you think it's a reflection that possibly what you're describing there? To, to me, swimmers need to be very individual people and very disciplined people. Therefore, 
it's a very individual sport and therefore that requires individual approaches. Correct. Absolutely correct. It, it, it's not a coincidence that Michael Phelps really is a standout swimmer in his club in Baltimore where uh, Bob Bauman, his coach, gives him particular care and attention. Ree Jeffrey, the Olympic champion, has come all the way from Florida to train with me here in Auckland. Why? Because she likes the care and attention that uh, I give her. And that um, that centralised, all piled in on top of one another approach was long since discredited for just the very reasons that you're saying. How successful can New Zealand be then at the, the London Olympics? I mean, because turning things around is, is going to take some time and, and therefore is it almost better to write off any possibility of success in London? Yes and no to that. We've got some fantastic swimmers. I mean, um, I was at the World Cup meets in Moscow, Stockholm and uh, Berlin last year when um, Melissa Ingram was um, swimming and uh, beating the best backstroke swimmers in the world. What I'm trying to say is, as far as London is concerned, I think as far as the organisation is concerned, we've we've lost uh, the way with London. It's it's too late to do anything different or significant. And it's purely going to come down to the individual and their strength as to whether they can turn things around. Correct. Uh, there's, There's one or two very, very good, like Melissa Ingram, uh, very, very good individuals. If they can pull it off, it will be in spite of the system rather than because of it. Who, who are the others that, that you see in that same type of mould then as Melissa Ingram? Well, she's 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 the best, but you also have Hayley Palmer in Florida now, who's particularly good. She's had the problem, of course, of, of changing countries and, and things like that. You've got Natalie in Invercargill, who's, who's also very, very good. Um, you've got Gareth Keane, coached by a very good coach, in, in Gary Hurring in, in Wellington. You've also got uh, Snyders, who's um, a good breaststroker. Don't think he's quite good enough to beat the very best, but uh, nevertheless, he's a good breaststroker. You'll notice the person I've missed out so far is Daniel Bell. I think he needs a bit more application. Um, he's in a tough event, the 100 backstroke, and I've seen America's best backstroke swimmers, and I, to be quite honest, I just don't think he's up to beating them. You're surprised that the, the report went as far as it did? I'm delighted that it... I never dreamt for a minute that... Um, that Ineson would write a report that was as comprehensive and uh, forthright as that. Um, and I think that both Spark and um, Ineson deserve huge credit. What they've done is good for swimming, and I think it's good for sport as a whole, because um, somebody's had the courage to stand up and tell the truth. And um, it's not often that you see that in sport. What we've got to make sure of, of course, is that uh, the courage that it took to write the report is now reflected in people actually taking actions to um, to do the things that the, the report suggests need done. And who's that going to be up to? Well, it can't be up to the board of Swimming New Zealand. They've shown they've lost the moral authority to to govern. Um, they are as responsible for the mess that uh, Swimming New Zealand is in as um as, as Mike Byrne and Jan Cameron.
Um, I think that it's time really for the regions who are the shareholders of Swimming New Zealand to uh, call a special general meeting and get the ship back into uh, organised in some um, with, with people who uh, have the moral authority to govern. They've given the sport a blank page and the current board uh, are not the people to write on that page. Moss Burmester, when he left last year, talked about this whole climate of fear. How, how did it manifest itself? Oh, it manifested itself in actual fear. I was talking to a very, very good New Zealand swimmer from yesteryear, a female, who had just had a baby. And so she was a you know mature woman now, and she went round to the Millennium Institute to um, show off her baby. And the comment that Jan came into the pool while she was there, and the comment that the person made, I still felt, I, I, she still scares me to death. You know, it was they, they were, they, they're scared of her. They are scared of her. There's no question about that. Um, Is that by her comments, by her approach? Well, she's an enormously strong personality. Um, you know, the number of people I've been. I've been saying that the Millennium Institute wouldn't work for six years. But I would say that, um, oh, I don't know, um, three, four, five hundred times during that six years, people have said to me, for goodness sake, tone down what you're saying in Swim Watch. Jan Cameron will get you. Jan Cameron will get you. Jan is um, Jan's a tough woman. And um, she, she was known for holding grudges. Um, and I'm lucky that she never managed to, she never managed to get hold of me. But um, you know, there, there have been careers won and lost on the favours of Jan Cameron. Such as who? Stephen, I'm sorry, I'd be really reluctant to start um, naming names in relation to that um, because a lot of them now have moved on to, you know, to university and to jobs and things like that, and they've put the difficult times they had um, behind them. But yes, there have been people that, um, whose careers have, have, um, have struggled because of, um, b- because of Jan. You're obviously pleased with the way that this report's gone. Is it, and then presumably the, the proof of the pudding now is going to be in just how, how things pan, pan out from, from here. How, how long would you or would be acceptable before changes were seen? There's a huge responsibility on the regions of New Zealand now. Um, The the organisation of Swimming New Zealand has been found to be um, short um, and it needs to be, uh, there needs to be an overhaul. The only people who are capable of conducting that overhaul are the members and the members in this case are the regions of Swimming New Zealand, and they must uh, change uh, Jan, they must change um, Mike Byrne, and they must change the the board, because the board was negligent in uh, allowing the state of affairs that now exists to to uh, to happen, um, and the membership must change that, and it should be done quickly. I think if they haven't done that in the next two months, then um, Inerson's report will have been um, will have been lost. 
I was talking to swim coach David Wright. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. New Zealand cricket's currently deciding just who'll fill the highest profile role in the sport, that of Black Caps captain. Ross Taylor and Brendan McCullum are in the running to replace Dan Vittori, who stepped down after the World Cup earlier this year. But at the other end of the profile spectrum, New Zealand cricket this week reappointed someone who could well be described as the invisible man of the Black Caps. That's assistant coach Australian Tread Woodhill. Woodhill joined the Black Caps in August last year and has been reappointed until October next year. But who is he? And was anyone aware the side even had an assistant coach? Obviously, you want to be you want to be recognised for what you're doing, and I, I get that through um, you know, the players and through through John Wright and also through New Zealand cricket. So so I'm recognised for doing a good job by those parties. So that's that's always nice. Um, but in terms of media presence, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty quiet on that front. But it's that, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think the, you know the players are the ones that need the the presence. Um, you know, and then and then John to to uh, let the the media know what's happening behind the scenes, and and I'm just. Um, just doing whatever's needed to make sure the Black Caps do well. Cricket followers may even struggle to uh, <laughs> name the Black Caps assistant coach. Yeah, true. I think it's. Um, I don't. I really don't know how to answer that. Other than um, I've been working full time as a coach for the last eleven years. My background's probably not well known. I've, I've worked in the IPL the last three years with the Delhi Daredevils, and before that with um, with New South Wales for four years and for Surrey under Steve Vixen for, for a season. So. Uh, I probably haven't got the profile. I, I, I look after Steve Smith, Dave Warner, Nick Addison and Phil Jackson, those guys in terms, of, in terms of their batting before I took over the New Zealand role. Um, so I was always behind the scenes in Australia as well. So it's it's probably just the way it is. The coaches really don't get the, the recognition unless they've got a um, a playing background. And, and if you haven't got a playing background, you, you're always sort of uh, jumping around the shadows rather than jumping at shadows. It's not something you've purposely though set out to, to do no no def- definitely not but, but likewise i haven't courted it i think it just comes it comes naturally if you're doing a bad job you'll, you'll definitely get press and if you if you're doing a good job then you know that'll eventually find its way to the right people but obviously i would like to, the new zealand public to know to know who i am more so just to know that i'm a uh, passionate and believer in this team and um, um, a very, very supporter of John Wright and, and looking forward to working with John Buchanan. So I think it's important that the public knows that I'm um, yeah, really committed to, to the New Zealand team. Being a, a cricket coach is obviously a pretty itinerant sort of lifestyle. Yeah. How have you found coming into the, the New Zealand setup? I mean, obviously you've, you've been here a couple of years now. Uh, yeah. but, but does it differ dramatically from, from what you've been in in the past? Um. It definitely differs from the Australian uh, kind of set up through the, the Shield system over here. But I spent a lot of time with Daniel Vittori for three years with the, with the Delhi Daredevils. I, I got to, to know him pretty well and then um, was quick to, to get to know the other New Zealand players. So it was a really it was really easy to, to get involved with that team and to interact with them because they're all good people and all and all very honest and all looking to improve their cricket. So that was a really easy situation which I probably didn't expect um, and they're not really interested in what I've done as a coach or what I've done as a former player they're only interested in what I'm going to be able to do to help them improve which is so the whole whole process over the last 12 months has been been easy in that regard. Although 
you would want to establish some credibility with them, would you not? I mean, your coaching background or your playing background might have some influence in doing that when it comes to, to dealing with players at that level. I think it, I think having credibility as a player, in my experience of what I've seen, gets you in the door, but doesn't keep the door open. So, so I've obviously got to do more as a non-international player um, to to make sure I have their ear. But that that comes through experience, and that comes through listening a lot more to what the player wants, needs, expects. So, so I probably change my um, my mode of conversation or presentation to depending on who I'm talking to. But you know, if the players um, like what they hear, or even if they don't like what they hear, but they can use what you're saying and it improves their, their um, level of skill and level of success, then they're going to continue continue to keep the door open, if you like. So I don't think the playing... I think in this day and age, the playing background's superfluous now to, to um, long-term coaching success because I think the, you know, the, this generation sees through... I was, going to, I was going to say bullshit, if you like, but I can't even a better way of, of using the expression. But, but, you know, they, they just want to be able to be told what they, they're expected to do. Um, the best way to achieve that is by doing this. Uh, and then if, in, then into re, if it needs rejigging, then I'll make sure that the, the lines of communication are open so that you know, we can keep cross-referencing what, what we're doing as, as a group, individually or as a team. And so they're not interested then in what you've done. And I was actually surprised uh, with my involvement with Delhi that the higher up the food chain I went in terms of the player I was dealing with, less, less likely were they interested in what I'd actually done as a, as a player. They're more interested in what I could provide as a coach. Is that maybe a sign of... As you got higher up the, the food chain, the players were obviously more self-confident than themselves and their own self-belief, whereas further down that may not have been the case? Well, I think the, the, the players down the list, they're looking for the, the holy grail. They're looking for the, you know, the, the, the elixir of cricket success, which, which tends to only exist through hard work, through learning your game, understanding different situations. And, and so if you're, a, if you're an exceptional player... Unless you can communicate how you became an exceptional player, you're not much used to, to a player who, has to, who struggles with their skill and is, has to work hard to survive. Likewise, if you were an average, average first-class cricketer that wants to make it as a coach, unless you can realise where people were successful and where people weren't, weren't successful, then you, you can't transport that information either. So yeah, just through, through working with Daniel, um, Brennan McCullum, Ross Taylor, etc., they're, they're looking at how they can improve their games with maybe information that's been gathered from around the world from different different sources. And so however however that's given to them, whether it's from a former great like Alan Donald or whether it's a, a nobody in terms of playing background like myself, then it, it, it doesn't really matter who it's coming from. I actually am happier with my, my background now because I'm not tied down to a past. I'm, my, my past keeps changing with, depending on who I'm interacting with. If it's, if it's sitting down with Verinda Saywag for an hour and having dinner and just talking about cricket or whether it's, it's um, talking to a, a youth player that I may have coached, I'm, I'm able to, to gather experience from them without clouding it with my own, my own background. So then I can actually retell that, that story to a player or define it to a, to a player to help them without, without cluttering it up with my own memories of cricket, if you like. You mentioned there before you were surprised how easy it was to, to come in to the Black Caps seen is that based on maybe your previous decade and coaching as to some of the situations you found yourself in i'm a lot more confident as a coach than i was 10 years ago and and even five years ago and that that comes from from spending time with 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 people i guess rather than 
trying to spend time with an exceptional cricketer. And that comes through the New Zealand players. Someone like Daniel Vittori, he's a world-class cricketer. His record is, is phenomenal, but he's, he's a phenomenal person as well. So, so it's easy to sit down with someone like him and have a conversation about any part of life or any part of cricket without feeling like you have to try to fit into that, that conversation. And, and that's where the New Zealand team is, is fantastic, is that they're all good people. So the, the trick is now is trying to, to develop that stilled edge, that, 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 um, that almost granite-like spine, so that they can, still, they can still stay those people, but also develop that, um, that harder, harder edge when they're on the field. And we saw that against the South Africans in the quarterfinal World Cup, that you know, the, the South Africans didn't know what hit them. They, they were shocked. And, and talking about, to a lot of them in the IPL, they were shocked at how, how we came at them. And it's, it's replicating that performance. Repeated, repeating that performance without it becoming just a, a one-off. That's the, that's the trick that, that this, this group of players has got to learn. I think under Wrighty especially that they're, they're starting to, to see that. Much is made about the Black Caps and, and the public wanting them, I suppose, to, or the New Zealand cricket team to be more like Australia and replicate yep. that success. And we talk about the, the hardness that Australian players have, have got. What, what's the biggest difference that you notice between New Zealand players per se, and Australian players at that top level? I mean, we, we talk of the older generation. It's just that uncompromising attitude to, to prepare well and to play hard and to and, and a win-at-all-cost mentality. But I, I'm not seeing um, the younger generation of Australian cricketers be any different to um, to any other nation. I think I think they're fallible at the moment. I think that they've, their processes have become become great, if you like, a bit blurry. So I, I'm not seeing anything with the New Zealand team that that, that suggests that they're they're not as hard or as uh, committed as any other nation. And that that came through the IPL, where I was surprised by interaction with other other nations that that you know, our players are, our players are good players and our players are training hard. And I think that showed in the IPL. What's the biggest thing for, for this Black Cap side over the next 12 months? What Roddy's done really well with this this group is that they stop talking about competing or, or stop looking at the finish line start just looking at day to day what do we need to do to make sure that today we're giving ourselves every chance of succeeding tomorrow and that's going to be the continued challenge for the group is to make sure they don't get too far ahead and but also when when we're in a competition demand the best best possible result um, that we can we can get and obviously that's that's winning winning matches not not competing in matches but actually winning matches what about uh, you, Trent? Are you uh, when you if you were to I suppose name your top three assets as, as a coach, what would they be? Understanding the individual I'm talking to, the, the ability to find success or, or positive thoughts when things aren't aren't looking that great, uh, and I think I've got a, a pretty good pretty good knowledge of, of fielding and um, technical aspects of batting. I think the, the fielding fielding side is 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 turned into a strength of mine. I think it's it's uh, showed during the World Cup. I think sometimes the players, through my non-playing background as a first-class figure, means that they can discuss things with me without me saying, you know, questioning it from my own my own background. I, I'm, I'm open to all things and, and see how what we can fit into their development. So if, if I can, can use it that way, then it, it works. And so far, the last 10 years, it's worked. Um, so, so hopefully it continues to do so. Big test, though, ahead for the Black Caps without Dan Vittori. What, what are Ross Taylor or Brendan McCullum, whoever gets that, that top job, going to have to, to do, I suppose, to, to build, build on or, or, or even come close to replacing the, the person that Dan Vittori is? 
Well, I think it's just probably the same question could be asked of what what uh, what Dan did when he took over from Flem. Um, whoever it is, whether it's whether it's Ross, as that they will develop their own style, but they have similar attributes to to uh, Daniel Vittori, and, and having spent a bit of time with Flem over the last couple of years, they have similar attributes to to, to Flem. They they dem- demand success through through the the actions of themselves and. When both guys have been in charge, in charge, or even when when Dan's skippering, both guys set a good example in terms of how they prepare for for matches and, and what they do on match day and, and during the game. So I think that they'll yeah, they'll form their own own style, and and obviously that'll be that'll be helped a lot by by Wrighty and by by John Buchanan. But they, yeah, I'm not sure we we have an issue with with either one of those guys taking over. I think. Um, I think they'll they'll do a good job and they'll have that support of Dan and that's where Dan's leadership is crucial. Even though he he may not be in charge, he still will be will be supporting um, heavily and, and helping helping whoever the new captain is. I was talking to the Black Caps assistant coach Trent Woodhill. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. Just a couple of days shy of his 32nd birthday, the Taranaki hooker Lawrence Corlett's set to make his Super Rugby debut for the Hurricanes. It's believed Corlett will become the oldest Super Rugby debutant if he gets off the bench for the Hurricanes in their last match against the Crusaders in Wellington on Saturday night. The regular reserve hooker Dane Coles offered to stand down this weekend to give Corlett a chance to play. Corlett made his first-class debut for Canterbury in 2001, and he's relishing the opportunity to play Super Rugby at an age when many have already retired. Ten years of first-class rugby to finally get a chance to get on the field, it's an amazing feeling. Yeah, I'd imagine you, you felt great about getting slipped in the squad, but you probably knew you were going to be in the background for most of the year. I've oh, definitely you've got guys like Andrew Hoare in front of you, who's a captain in All Black, and Dane Coles, who thought the opportunity comes comes to take it. So Funny as well, a wider training group of the Crusaders previously, and lo and behold, you're playing them, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I've I, I actually made a first-class... Debut in 2001 for Canterbury with Brad Thorne, so uh, it's pretty hard case to be playing the guys that I friends with a lot of the players, and it's pretty awesome. And I understand Dane Coles is giving an early birthday present. Yeah, very, very lucky. 10:32 next week, and uh, Dane Coles here to have a have a, have a crack. So yeah, awesome. What does that mean to you, to a guy who's seen you obviously plug away all year to go right? How, okay, Mark Hammett, give him a go. Oh, fantastic! Great feeling. It's the sort of stuff you kind of dream about. Even though in my age, a lot of guys are well retired at home. And uh, to get a chance to run on the field and, and, and be involved with the Super 15 competition, unbelievable. Yeah, it just keeps, it keeps everyone happy, keeps the battlers kind of battling on, you never know when you might get a chance to have a run. Yeah, I imagine it's tough, isn't it, training week in, week out, not getting the joys of playing? Well, it's, <laughs> it is part of it, but I, I enjoy training. Um, it, yeah, it's just been a fantastic opportunity, and, and training, so I enjoy it, so it's just, yeah. So you have visions of scoring on your debut, <laughs> running 70 metres, sidestepping Brad Thorne, chipping oh, the, over the ne- fullback and scoring? Oh, getting on the field would be out, outstanding. Maybe, maybe scoring a try might be a bit too far, but getting on the field would be, would be yeah, fantastic and be good for the guys at work and good for the family. Rory's been coming off about 60 minutes. I mean, yeah, yeah sort of <laughs> contemplating how, how much time you want it to get. Oh, I'll take one minute. I'll take anything. Um, I, if if we go sixty minutes or more, get on him. He's, he's he's a good good tough campaign. I've known him for a long time, so it's pretty good to be be involved with the squad with, with Hori. That's Hurricanes reserve hooker Lawrence Corlett, who's set to become quite possibly the oldest Super Rugby debutant. And that match marks the All Blacks Andrew Hoare and Ma Nonu's last for the Hurricanes, after the pair were controversially told by the franchise last week they're no longer wanted. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for this week. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 